Like, I think that's, that's Okay, welcome everyone to this week's episode of the Organ Donation Awareness Club podcast. Today, our hosts are myself, my name is Claire, and I also have our VP Research Conference, Dia, with me today. My name is Claire and I'm the club president, so I'm really happy to have this conversation with uh, one of our fellow execs, um, and I'll just get started. So Dia, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi everyone, my name is Dia. Yeah, I am the VP Research and Conference here at Organ Donation Club, and I'm super excited to be here and discuss the results of a survey that was done a few weeks back. Thanks, Dia. So yeah, um, jumping right in, we did have a survey that was released on our Instagram page. Um, our VP social media put it together, the lovely Erica. Um, so today we're just going to be talking about the responses that we received, um, some myths, and we're looking at how people answered questions, if there was a commonly missed question, um, just to see and kind of get a feel of how the student body responds or their perspectives or even their knowledge about organ, tissue, and blood donation. Okay, so um, I'll jump into our first question. So the question was, what percentage of Canadians do you think have registered to become organ donors? The answers possible were 10 to 20%, 30 to 40%, and 50 to 60%. Dia, if I were to ask you this question, what do you think the correct answer is? I think the correct answer would have been between 30 to 40 percent just because I feel in today's time people are slowly getting more educated about it but there's still a large population that is not fully aware of what organ donation is and what it means to become an organ donor so I would say it would be somewhere in the middle this is why I think it would be 30 to 40 Great job, Dia. That is correct. So um, just like I do on my university exams, if there's something I'm not sure about too, I always kind of go for the middle. Um, so yeah, the correct answer, the percentage of Canadians that are registered to become organ donors is 30 to 40%. Um, so it's, it's quite a range. Um, 30 to 40% is registered organ donors, meaning that they registered with their provincial um, health organization or their territorial health organization. Um, and so this 30 to 40 percent is it is increasing like you were talking about Dia, but it's something that also as a club we really want to work towards increasing that number. Um, of course, we want to be respectful of people's traditions and beliefs and culture, um, but I do think like you that um, there may be some people that are hesitant about it, and maybe the reason for that hesitancy is they're just not aware. So that's a big reason of why, you know, our club currently acts as the Organ Donation Awareness Club at the University of Ottawa, just to act as a resource for students and community members to learn more and make informed healthcare decisions for them. So yes, we're hoping to see this percentage increase, um, but currently the, number, the percentage of Canadians that are registered is 30 to 40%. So I hope that um, that's kind of getting everyone in the kind of frame of mind or thinking about the perspective that we're continuing the rest of these questions with. I absolutely agree with you. And on that same note, let's move on to the second question, which was on average, how many lives can one donor save? Personally, um, the options that were given were five lives, eight lives, 20 lives, right? But personally, I think that five lives was the correct answer just because I wasn't totally sure of 
how what's the potential so i thought it would be the least number but it turns out eight lives is the correct answer and 44 percent of our surveyors answered that right which was amazing yeah, that's, I'm really happy to see that. Um, the largest percentage, just like in the last question we should have said, around, we're at around the 45% mark that are answering correctly. So our club's doing its job. Um, but yeah, so on average, one registered organ donor um, can save up to eight lives. And there's also a flip side of this question of how many lives can an organ donor improve? And that's 75. So if you're a registered organ donor and you happen to pass away under certain circumstances um, through the donation of organs, so your heart, lobes of your lung, your liver, your kidneys, um, these vital organs, part of the intestine, you can save eight lives of people currently waiting on Canadian um, organ weight transplant lists, but also improve the quality of life for up to 75 others. So that includes things like cornea transplant. So you're giving people the gift of sight, um, skin transplants, um, um, there's a variety of others. So yeah, officially one donor can save eight lives um, and improve or enhance many more. So that's a great question. Um, and I'm glad that people were, were thinking about it. Um, 20 lives would be absolutely awesome. And maybe with um, advances in technology, we can get there, but right now it's eight. Okay, so moving on to our third question, kind of keeping with the times of COVID-19. Um, the third question was, are transplant recipients able to receive the COVID-19 vaccine? The answer or the options were yes or no. Um, so this one, it, there, was a, there was a clear answer. 72% of our respondents said yes, um, which is correct. So um, I do have members of my family that, have, that are recipients of a transplant. Um, on, on another episode of this podcast, I actually interviewed my mother who is a transplant recipient. And um, it's, it's encouraged that these transplant recipients are receiving the COVID-19 vaccine, um, primarily because with the treatment therapies and the drug regimen that they're given uh, after their transplant, there's a lot of immunosuppressant therapies. Um, so imagine that uh, your immune system is weakened. And so if your immune system is weakened, especially now, um, you may be more susceptible to getting COVID-19. And we want to make sure that these people don't get COVID-19, especially because they've had a transplant and they have an organ that's a little bit more um, at risk. So it's important that transplant recipients can get the COVID-19 if they're able to do so and their healthcare providers um, give them the green light. And I'm glad to see that so many um, survey respondents also agreed with us and knew this important fact. Isn't it cool, Dia, that like, you know, COVID-19, it's so in the news right now, but uh, it definitely has implications for transplant recipients. Yes, and I think you raised a really good point about the weakened immune system. I think during this harsh times, it's very important to keep our immune system boosted. Um, and so it can be difficult for organ transplant recipients, but it is not impossible. And I think a way of doing this is just by going and getting your COVID-19 vaccines, your booster shots, and yeah, that's perfect. Moving on to the next question, which was, is receiving a kidney transplant a cure for kidney disease? Now, this was a very, very popular question. And the um, answers for these was no, it is a treatment for kidney disease. Yes, it is a cure. Um, between these two, I'm very happy to see that majority of the people, which was 72%, answered that no, it is a treatment for kidney disease, but that doesn't purely mean that it's a cure for it. 
which is, I think, very true. Just because you have a kidney transplant doesn't mean that in the future you cannot have a kidney disease again. Um, there have been stories of patients who had to, you know, who had a kidney disease after their kidney transplant. So it is very, very important to take care of your health, keep your immune system boosted so that you don't have to go through that pain again. Yes, Dia, I absolutely echo that. Um, so I, I do have kidney kind of diseases in my family. Um, and so receiving a kidney transplant is not a cure, like Dia said. Um, there can be other treatments like dialysis that happen. But a lot of the time, the reason why people are needing a kidney transplant is the underlying cause. And so um, a big one is diabetes. So if you get a kidney, um, a kidney transplant, it doesn't cure the diabetes um, or even a genetic condition that affects your kidneys. Uh, so Typically, kidney transplants last about 25. They're kind of increasing to about 30 years. Um, but after that time, um, you know, your body's under this harsh regimen of immunosuppressive drugs. It can attack the kidney or the, the transplanted organ. Um, so it's not a cure. And oftentimes, transplant recipients, especially, well, at least that I know of, or I have personal experience of kidneys, may need a second um, kidney transplant. Um, so it is not a cure, but it is the best way for those who are needing these, these transplants to improve their quality of life. Um, so yeah, I'm glad to know that uh, a lot of people are getting educated on this topic and answered it correctly. Now, our next question, um, the correct answer was actually not the most popular, which is interesting. Uh, so the question reads, which one of these potential donors cannot donate blood? Your options are John, who has had tattoos for years, the second option is Sam, who just got a nose piercing. And your third option, which is Emma, who smokes marijuana recreationally, but hasn't smoked in the last 12 hours. So if you are someone who maybe has donated blood, well, thank you. Um, but you've probably seen these types of questions before in the questionnaire that you receive before your blood donation. So um, our most popular answer was Emma, who smokes marijuana recreationally, but hasn't smoked in the last 12 hours. However, the correct answer, which is very close in the number of respondents who have said uh, this answer, but the person who cannot donate blood is Sam, who just got a nose piercing. And the reason why is because when you do get a piercing or even a tattoo within a short period of time, um, for, for blood donation, there is a possibility that when you're getting a piercing or a tattoo that you're introducing something new to your body, you may have a reaction or you may have some kind of infection following it. So when you go to donate blood, obviously we want the best quality blood that we can provide um, to give to those who need it. And so we're just wanting to make sure that we're crossing our T's and dotting our I's. Um, so Sam, who just recently got a nose piercing is unable to donate. However, John, who's had tattoos for years, is able to donate because it's not something recent that's been um, that's been uh, done to his body. So um, it, that's a quite interesting question. Um, and a lot of these too, if you're ever hesitant or you're wondering if you're eligible to donate blood, um, you can go through the Canadian Blood Services checklist on their website prior to your blood donation, just to make sure that you uh, you meet all their requirements. So um, yeah, the person who couldn't donate blood in this case was someone uh, who had just gotten a nose piercing, which is interesting. And I'm glad that we can talk about it and kind of dispel this myth. Uh, so I think that's pretty cool. And I think it's also very important you raised the right point about checking the website is just because 
it is very noble and very nice of people to go and donate blood, but that trip should be a successful trip when you do go to the location and you don't want to actually reach there and then be able to not donate your blood, right? So it is very important. It saves you time it and it doesn't mean that you can donate it's just you have to wait a longer period before you can help someone out yeah exactly on that note, Go ahead. moving on to the most one of the most popular questions which was which type of disorders make you likely ineligible to become an organ donor now there are multiple options for these and the first disease was um correct me if i'm wrong it's cruets Cell that Jacob disease. Did I pronounce that right? Yeah. Um, from what I've seen in my anatomy classes, it's spelled Jacob disease or Jacob if you're French. <laughs> okay. And then the second option was rheumatoid arthritis. The third option was tuber tuberculosis, culosis, tuberculosis. And the fourth option was HIV. Now the most, uh, so there are three correct options in these. Um, all the three correct options is Kuwait-Feldet Jacob disease, tuberculosis, and HIV. And I'm very happy that at least one of the options was voted with the highest percentage, which was HIV. 64% of our pop uh, of our surveyors actually answered that right. Yeah, those are all great points that you're that you're bringing up, Dia. Um, so, of the answers that were correct in this case, what made persons ineligible to become an organ donor are most likely, um, or in this case, the tuberculosis and the HIV are infections. And Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, I'm pretty sure that's also an infection or it's introduced to your body. Um, so these are all things that are being introduced to your body that can have negative effects maybe on your, your own organs. So you don't want to donate your, your kidney, for instance, if yours are going to deteriorate. Um, you want to try and maintain your own health first, and that's also what your healthcare providers are doing. Um, they, they're not going to give away your kidney if there's a chance that you may need it. Um, and then rheumatoid arthritis was an option. However, if you have rheumatoid arthritis, that does not stop you from being an organ donor. And the reason why is that Rheumatoid arthritis, although it is kind of an autoimmune condition, it's not something that's being introduced to your body. It's just a reaction that your body's already having. Um, so that's pretty interesting is that there's kind of a, um, a, a distinct barrier of what makes you kind of likely ineligible uh, versus conditions that you're still able to donate. Um, so in this case, with arthritis, you are able to um, register to be an organ donor. That's I think that's also a good point for many people may not know this, and there could be so many arthritis patients that actually may have thought that they cannot donate, but this proves that they can. So um, anybody who has arthritis, you still can donate your blood. It's just a total, it's totally your opinion and your option if you want to, but if you do want to, arthritis is not going to stop you from doing so. There we go. Power to the people, Dia. I like it. Um, we're not going to stop anyone. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. So um, our next question um, is kind of recent in the news, um, and it reads, in 2019, the deferral period of donating blood for homosexual men became how many months? So this infers, and, it, and it's true, that there was a change. In 2019, um, particularly Canadian Blood Services and also legislation around this kind of decision changed. And so the, the there was a, prior to this, there was a certain amount of time that a person who identified as a homosexual male um, had to wait 
following sexual intercourse to uh, donate blood. So there was this waiting period. Um, and typically it's thought to have been because of, you know, HIV and the thought of, you know, spreading this kind of infection. But we know that it's not just homosexual males or people who identify as homosexual males that can get HIV or can spread HIV. Um, so in 2019, the government and the organizations around blood donation kind of recognized this. So in our question, the deferral period became how many months? Our options were eight, five, and three. So um, it had it had gone from this kind of stigma, and then I recognize there's still a stigma around it, um, but the, the deferral period lessened. And so the correct answer is three. Right now, uh, for someone who's identifying as a homosexual male, they have to wait three months um, to donate blood. So although we recognize that there's a barrier currently still here. Um, and this is something that you'd also find on the Canadian Blood Services website if you look up your eligibility criteria. Um, we are noticing that it's starting to decrease. We're starting to get better about talking about these issues, um, destigmatizing them and recognizing that things like HIV can affect the full population, not just those who identify in a certain area or on, on a uh, certain um, sexual orientation or, or gender. So um, this was kind of a big success. Uh, I know that in the news that I watch, I know I'm kind of biased as the president of this club, but it, it was it, it was uh, big in the news in 2019. And I think it's definitely a step in the right direction towards equality in the healthcare system. So a big loaded kind of question, but uh, yeah. And also, in fact, um, a lot of our responders to the survey did not answer it correctly. They thought it was about five months. So 44% of our responders thought it was five month deferral period, but 24% of uh, our respondents were correct and that is three months. So uh, learning something new, you know, that's why we're here to talk about the results of this poll and to kind of learn what um, University of Ottawa students are thinking and, and to inform them about these changes. And I think the more of us, the more we know, the better, you know, like the more conversation takes place. And I feel like that's a step forward to equality. Exactly. So, it totally works out. Uh, moving on to the next question. This was more of like a fill in the blank sort of thinking question, which was fun. Um, it says, I have to be dash years old to register as an organ donor and I have to be, and, and I dash would draw consent at any time. So the options was 18 and cannot, 18 can, 16 can, and 16 cannot. And I'm so happy to announce that a majority of the people of the surveyors answered that I have to be 16 years old to register as an organ donor and I can withdraw consent at any time, which is awesome. And I think that's the time I also um, registered to be an organ donor when I gave my G1 license. And then, yeah, you know, when they asked you and I was like, yes, I would love to. <laughs> So that's amazing. Um, so this is like a quick tip for all of you out there who are turning 16 and giving your G1 driver's license. They will ask you if you want to be an organ donor. It's totally up to you and your preference and with your consent if you do want to. And you can um, you can withdraw that consent at any point in time of your life because at the end of the day, it is your life. It is your choice. And yeah. Yeah, this is a really interesting question. I uh, I thought of a few things right away when you said it, Dia. Um, I know that a lot of people, or even um, when we're growing up, we think, oh, you're 18, you're an adult, you can make these kind of decisions, where it's actually 16. And like Dia mentioned, a lot of people associate it with getting their driver's license. Sometimes you'll get a letter in the mail saying, you know, do you want to become an, or a registered organ donor? 
Um, but things also can vary from province to province. So um, we had another club member, our VP bilingual, Jesse. Um, she did a lot of work on looking at organ donation and blood donation across Canada. Um, so it can change from province to province, but definitely in Ontario, where we're, where we're calling in from today, um, it's 16 years of age. And uh, yeah, so that's another big one. You can register to be an organ donor when you get your driver's license, but also for those who choose not to drive or maybe don't have the opportunity to drive, you can also look up uh, for at least the province of Ontario, beadonor.ca, and you can register through there as well. So you don't have to be a driver to be an organ donor, um, but it is kind of associated with it, as I'm sure, and as uh, Dia mentioned, when you get your license, it's an option. I think it's just like a quick idea, like a one-way step to it. You get two jobs done, but yes, for sure. You should definitely check on the website for all the details because you want to be informed about what you're like signing into. You may want to discuss with your family or do as, as, as a personal choice. It's totally up to you. And I think the best part is that you can withdraw your consent. So it's not like one and done it's more of whatever you feel like whenever you're comfortable and ready to step into this world of organ donation and you know help out someone there so yes yes absolutely dia and um as some of our listeners from the podcast may realize uh, in the conversation with my mother my mother really mentioned uh she's a kidney recipient and she said it's very important to talk with your family like dia was saying about your decisions especially if it concerns um, end of life um, if you're a deceased organ donor. So having your family members know your decisions and your wishes is very important. And in addition, in making these decisions, bringing in your healthcare providers or your family doctor, um, these are all also important things to think about if you're thinking to become uh, or want to become an organ donor. And also as the club, we can point you in the right direction with different resources. But of course, we're not medical professionals. So um, we have many resources for you to look into. Okay, moving on. I, I'm just talking so much. This is one of my favorite topics, so it's easy. Um, can an individual with cancer receive an organ donation or receive an organ, I guess? Um, so we actually just had a presentation with the Relay for Life team at U Ottawa. Um, so we, we learned about this a lot. Uh, so it's, it's been fortunate. And if you want, we can also send you the link for that presentation. If anyone's interested, you can email the club. Um, but the options are, for the question, can an individual with cancer receive an organ? Your options are in, more, in most cases, yes. The second option is always. And the third option is no. Since they've had cancer, they are no longer eligible. So um, the correct answer, and with a smashing success at 73.9% of respondents, the correct answer is yes. In most cases, individuals with cancer can receive an organ um, transplant. So um, this is kind of a debated topic, I think. Um, some of our listeners may not know um, why. And so um, you have to be in remission from cancer. Um, typically, unless it's very dire, they won't donate um, cancer to an individual. Uh, sorry, they won't donate an organ to an individual with cancer. But um, it also depends on situation by situation. So um, let's say if you have liver cancer, um, it's very viable for a liver donation or, or part of a liver donation. So it does vary case by case. Um, and it depends on where your where cancer could be at, um, how at risk you are, also the quality of life that someone with the transplant uh, would expect to have following the transplant. Um, so these are all things that most likely um, your primary care physician or your care team would look into if you are looking or need an organ transplant and have cancer. Um, but 
they're all kind of discussions around um, medical ethics are brought into about quality of life, how many people we can help. Um, but individuals with cancer typically in most cases can receive an organ if that's going to improve their quality of life and their health. So um, I actually learned a little bit when looking into this question. Um, it wasn't something I was very sure of myself. So it's, it's great that so many other individuals uh, answered correctly because I'm more than happy to say as the club president of the Organ Donation Awareness Club, I'm constantly learning. I don't know everything. Um, and it's a great environment to be a part of where we can have these conversations like with Dia today. Learning something new every day. <laughs> Keeps um, us young. Yes, for sure. Now, moving on to the last question for the day, which is sort of an open-ended question, which says, in addition to blood, you can also donate, and our options are plasma, correct me if I'm wrong again, umbilical cord blood? Yeah. Or, that's how we pronounce it, right? Umbilical cord blood, stem cells, and all of the above. And I'm so proud to say that 87% of our surveyors answered the right answer, which was all of the above. Uh, so you can donate plasma, umbilical cord blood, and stem cells in addition to blood and help more people around depending on what specific thing they require for their medical condition. Yeah, exactly. So thanks for bringing this in, Dia. I think it's a great way to wrap it up on like a really positive note about how we can um, help the larger world around us. So um, you're right, plasma can be donated and that can help for conditions like leukemia. Um, umbilical cord blood is really important, especially for other newborns. Um, and, and even in research too, umbilical cord is really important, umbilical cord blood, sorry. Um, and stem cells is an ongoing research. Um, it's also very helpful um, right now, Canadian Blood Services has a big campaign going on where they're looking at stem cells and they need stem cells from varying populations. So if you're a minority, um, those are the, the, your blood is really needed or your stem cells. So um, you can help someone that's also part of your minority group. And the reason why for that is because um, different blood types and different blood components or um, things like that vary by region or by um, culture or uh, ethnicity. So in addition to blood, you can also donate the plasma, the umbilical cord blood and stem cells. And if you have any further questions about these three components that you can donate, um, I'll direct you to the Canadian Blood Services website. Um, they have important information about this. If you want to register to donate, it would be right on that webpage. Um, they can answer any questions you have about it. And uh, that's the way to go about donating plasma, umbilical cord blood and stem cells. Um, so yeah, with that, that's the end of our kind of discussion about this poll that we had, uh, our club had put together. And I'm really glad that we could dispel some myths, talk about some reasons why these answers were correct or incorrect. Um, and I had a really, I had a blast with Dia today. So thanks for being with, here with me. I had an amazing time as well. And I think it's wonderful um, now that we look at the results and talk about it, that I think as a whole, um, as part of the Ottawa community, I think we're slowly getting more educated and more aware of what all reasons and how we can better this community and how we can really help out all the people out there who need our help and you know who who have weakened immune systems but you know just by a small donation it can totally save their lives and i think as a group of this club and as part of this member as a member of this group i think i would love to work more in the future to you know get get more people to be aware about it and talking about it the more we talk the more we learn and spread knowledge out there 
thank, thank you. you so much for having me today, Claire. It was a lot of fun. I was going to say with that, uh, I think we'll end this, this conversation or this episode for today with Dia's amazing comments about a lot you're really touching on about why we started this club is to make this conversation and have a welcoming and open space for people to uh, make healthcare and informed healthcare decisions that are right for them. So we're not pushing one way or another what's right or wrong, um, but just to act as a space for people or students, primarily our student body, to learn more. Um, and to open up this conversation and something that not everyone finds very comfortable to talk about. Uh, but don't worry, that's what we're here for. So we'll dispel myths, um, we'll meet, we'll talk with different people of different beliefs. Um, we'll get a better picture of the overall healthcare system and of organ and blood and tissue donation. Um, so yeah, that's our kind of end of podcast for today. Uh, thank you for listening and we'll look forward to seeing you next time. Bye now.